please join me in prayer. Lord, we give you thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have been presented on our behalf and therefore will one day present us unblemished to the Father before his throne. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us mindful of the fact that you are our light and our Redeemer and that we would share that news everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. What's the biggest presentation you've ever partaken in? Think about it for a minute. What's the biggest presentation you've ever partaken in? Some of uh, the congregation at 8 o'clock gave me quizzical looks, and I think part of that is the way we use the word, right? Sometimes we give a presentation and we, we think of like a PowerPoint presentation, for example, right? But I'm thinking more of a presentation like an awards ceremony, right? When you're presented with something. Maybe it was a diploma or a degree. Perhaps it was in your profession. Maybe you won an award for performance. Maybe you were promoted in military rank to the next level. One of my favorite presentations that I get to partake in is presenting the newly married couple, Mr. and Mrs., and presenting them to the congregation for the first time. But when you think about those presentations that you've partaken in, what usually accompanies them? Maybe a dinner, perhaps a brass band, maybe a big ceremony. It was memorable, it was significant, I'm sure, and it's supposed to be, right? Today is no different. Today is no different. Uh, today in the church calendar, we celebrate a feast called the Presentation of Our Lord and the Purification of the Blessed Virgin. Well, that's a mouthful, right? And there's a lot going on there. Um, also, it's called Candlemas because of the candles that are blessed today historically. Hopefully, by the end of the sermon, it'll make sense and tie together a little for you. But I will warn you, there's just a lot that could be covered that I won't be covering today. But let's look at the presentation, because it's one of those things that I think is under-celebrated in the church, right? We all know about Christmas, we know about Easter, Epiphany, okay, we got it, the Three Kings. What about the presentation? What about the presentation? The presentation of our Lord is something a little bit technical, which is why I think it gets lost sometimes. It goes back to the Old Testament, and we're going to see today that it's rooted in God's law, and it takes into account the fact that God, from the very beginning, planned to send Jesus Christ, which is really exciting. It has a lot to teach us if we're willing to do some work and look at it. So, what are we doing? Why are we back here and Jesus is a baby again, right? What's going on here? Because that's where we are, we're... we're flashing back, right, um, in the season of Epiphany that we've been going through. We had, of course, the Epiphany, where the wise men come and worship Jesus earlier in Luke, right? And then we have Jesus' transformation of holy baptism. So we jump to his being an adult, right? 
and he's baptized and he transforms baptism from repentance now to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we see Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel, right? And they leave their homes and they come and they follow him and indeed they follow him until, his de- until their deaths. And of course, last week we saw Peter and Andrew responding to Jesus' call, also following him the rest of their lives. What's going on? What's the church trying to teach us? We have to ask that, right? And what I think the church is trying to teach us here is that the light of the world has come into the world, and the world responds to it differently. And so we look at the epiphany. The magi respond with adoration, but Herod responds with slaughter, right? Jesus is brought to baptism, and and the world responds to him as its Lord, seeing him as God's son with whom God's well pleased. Philip and Nathaniel, Peter and Andrew respond to the light of Christ. They do obey his call and go and follow him. And so here we are back at the temple with Jesus as a baby and the light comes into the temple. The light comes into the temple. Now what does that mean? How is that significant? Well, God himself here, who has been promised, who's promised from of old to come and dwell with his people, actually physically enters into the temple in Jesus Christ. Do you understand the significance of this? It's hard for us, I think, not as Jews to understand the significance of this, but Simeon's reaction is the reaction of a Hebrew people that's been waiting for this for centuries, waiting for this fulfillment for centuries. Malachi the prophet had foretold it in our first reading today. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so here today, behold, he is here. He is here. He has entered into the temple as a little baby. That's what the presentation is all about, this fulfillment of God's promise. It's in accordance with God's law that Mary and Joseph present Jesus to be redeemed. And we're going to see there's more in that too. God presents Jesus to Israel and the Gentiles as their Redeemer. And some accept him, and some do not. As Simeon says, right? Look at Simeon's response at the end. This is verse 34, the second part. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, he says to Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's look at the first part. Let's look at the redemption according to God's law. Well, what is redemption? If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke 2 to give us a little bit further background of what's going on. You can look at the scripture insert, but... 
Luke 2 tells more of the story because we, we come to understand why we are where we are in the story. And so Luke 2, looking back, before today's reading, we read in verse, let's see, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then today's reading starts. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We'll stop there for the moment. So what's going on here? A lot of people get this confused. This is not the circumcision of Jesus. This is not the naming of Jesus. This is the presentation of Jesus. And why it's confusing is what happens in Scripture happens a lot in Scripture, and that's that there's a big gap between verses 21 and 22. So between the first verse of today's reading and the verse preceding it, right, between the circumcision and the time at which Mary is to be purified, there's 22, uh, rather, is uh, 72 days. There's a, a gap here of 72 days. It's two and a half months. And so this is in accordance with the Old Testament law. Now hang with me, we're getting a little technical, but I promise it'll be worth the work. So why does Jesus go to the temple in accordance with the law? Why does God have the firstborn be male be presented in the temple? Well, we can look back, number one, at Leviticus 12. Okay, so this is Leviticus 12, so it's in Moses' law. The Lord says to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she's unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. So here we have, in accordance with the law, Jesus circumcised, right? Earlier in the chapter. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. So what's going on here? Well, the answer is a lot. And uh, I will resist launching into a mini-sermon on this. But suffice it to say, the laws of purity in the Old Testament are all about teaching God's people about holiness. And it's not that birth or sex or those things are, are icky. That's not the point here, right? The point is actually that God is setting apart these things to show that these are very holy things. That they're things that God created as part of life. And that life is sacred. So this is a sanctity of life statement in the law. Okay? There ends the mini-sermon. Let's continue. So look back with me at, ver at uh, the, the gospel passage, Luke 22 and 23. So what are Mary and Joseph doing? They're obeying 
the law, do you see? They're obeying the law. As it is written, says verse 23, in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be holy to the Lord. That's another part of the law. Okay? So, we keep going. Again, St. Luke points us back to the Old Testament, showing that this is a fulfillment of something that God planned for centuries. So this is Exodus chapter 13. You know, the book of Exodus, where God saves his people from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right? So this is chapter 13, verse 11. Now when the Lord brings you out of the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offering, offspring rather, of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So what's going on here? Well, the firstborn in this context is looking back at the Passover. What happens earlier in Exodus with the Passover? I'm going through this with my First Communion kids right now. Let's see if you know more than them. I had two of them at 8 o'clock, and they got this right. What happens in the Passover? You've got the ten plagues, right? And God is freeing his people, and he's demonstrating his superiority to Egypt's God with the plagues. So you get the flies and the locusts and the river of blood. What happens with the tenth plague? The firstborn dies of the beast, right? The beast in the field, and of those who are not covered with the blood of the lamb. You should be having flags or bells start to go off in your head at this point. Hmm, what's going on? What's God doing? Something that connects to Jesus in the New Testament, right? So God tells us here in Exodus what he's doing. We continue. This is Exodus 13, verse 14. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Meaning, what is this redemption stuff? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. You see, what the presentation is all about is this sacramental act that God sets up in the Old Testament to foreshadow Jesus. The presentation's all about God giving his people mercy that they don't deserve. And so it's to remind them of the plague, the tenth plague. Because remember, it's not because Israel is some wonderful people that God redeems them. It's not because the Jews are good. In fact, Scripture says otherwise. But it's because God has chosen them to be his own. And therefore, he gives them the blood of the Lamb to put over their doorposts so that the angel of death passes over them. 
And so what's he telling his people here? He's telling them that they are not their own. They never have been their own. That they're his possession. And that they've been bought with a price. And they've been saved with a price. They've been redeemed with a price. In the Old Testament, of a lamb. In the New Testament, with the Lamb of God. You see the connections that are being drawn here, that God has set up from the beginning. What does it mean to redeem? It means to take something in and receive something back, right? You might redeem a coupon, right? You might redeem a loan, right? So what's going on here is that God is providing his people a sacrifice for their redemption. Now, why is it the firstborn son? Well, this is a cultural thing. So the firstborn son in Old Testament culture, and indeed in in much uh, even Middle Eastern cultures today and around the world, the firstborn son represents the next generation. He takes the family name. He carries with him the family burden, all of the duties, all of the responsibilities, and all the privileges. He, one day, will be the patriarch of the family. He'll be the head of the family. And therefore, the firstborn son being redeemed is saying something to God's people, beyond the fact that they're his as a people, that they particularly, as families, are his, do you see? What's God saying here? That as the firstborn son is redeemed, it's showing them that, yes, you are my people, and you, Templetons, are my people. Right? That's my surname. Or you, Hams, are my people. Not just Ryan, but Ryan's descendants, and their descendants, and their descendants forever. You are my people. Do you see what's being said here? But notice, there is a price to be paid. Look at Luke 2, 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or a pair of two pigeons. Now this is where the presentation of Jesus gets really interesting. Because Jesus goes from being the redeemed firstborn son of Mary and Joseph to being the redeemer of all God's people. Of all God's people. So Jesus doesn't need the sacrifices made in the temple except to fulfill the law. Because Jesus is going to become the sacrifice for all God's people. And so you see this huge pivot here in the text where Jesus comes and fulfills the law and establishes a relationship with God's people, makes them all sons of God. And that's what Simeon and Anna are reacting to. That's why they're so joyful, because they've been waiting for this for long, a long time. This is the supreme irony of the presentation. Just as Jesus changed baptism around, so here he changes redemption around. Right? And so instead of him being redeemed as the firstborn son, he as the firstborn 
Son of God redeems His people forever and always. Period. And opens that redemption to the whole world. To the whole world. Look at what Simeon says, right? We say it, if we pray this every night, the Book of Common Prayer, it's the, the service of Compline, and evening prayer too, we say this. Look at verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So it's not just for Israel, but it's for the Gentiles too. The Old Testament system was to separate God's people from darkness and impurity in the world and the New Testament is to show that light shines in the darkness and goes out into the world. Jesus fulfills this law himself as the Redeemer. St. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. You see, friends, you, as his possession, as a baptized Christian, your families, as baptized Christians, are redeemed. You're part of his possession. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You're the Lord's. And God makes good on this promise for every generation to free us from darkness, going back to the Old Testament. But the good news is that he has saved us. He's called us and he's purified us. In Hebrews 2.18, we get that message also from the author of Hebrews in our epistle reading. For he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. And for this reason, friends, not only do we remember the presentation but we also light candles on Candlemas and bless candles because we need the constant sacramental reminders because we're a forgetful people, just like the Hebrews in the Old Testament. We forget whose we are. We forget that we've been redeemed. And we also get distracted and forget that we're to take that word and preserve it and convey it to our neighbors and our friends and the world, that they too can be sons and daughters of God. Do you understand what a precious status that is, to be a son or a daughter of God? We, we use that term so loosely today. People will say, oh, we're all children of God. No, you're not children of God unless you've been bought with a price. You are a son or a daughter of God because Jesus has redeemed you. It's a reminder that that price was blood. And that blood ended up being shed by the Redeemer. So, as you take these candles today, which are blessed, and I'm going to invite you to take at the end of the service, they're to remind us that Jesus is with us and that we bear the light of Christ. This red candle up front, did you ever wonder what that is? Some of you probably know. It's called the tabernacle lamp or the candle of presence. It's to remind us every time we come to the church, it stays constantly lit. So the church, I'll, I love it. I'll leave church and it'll be dark in here, pitch black, except for that candle. 
And sometimes I'll come in here and say a quick prayer before going out the door back home at night. Jesus, God is always here. But he's always in you. He dwells in you. You're his temple too. And so we send these candles with you to take to your home to remind you that he's in you and with you. And you're to both remember his light and act upon his light. And so, you know, take, it, take this with you. Light it when you pray. Light it if you're feeling despair. Light it if you're forgetting who you are. Light it to remind you that you're a light in this dark world as part of Christ's light. Friends, we're growing together in God's word. But are we, lighting, are we letting his light, and this is the challenge that St. Luke says to us, are we lighting, letting his light pervade our hearts and souls, pierce our hearts and souls? Are we letting his light change us? We're coming up on the season of Lent where we'll focus on that a lot. But this is a precursor. How is Jesus' light changing your hearts? How are you being purified? And secondly, how are you shining forth his light? Because it's no good to keep it to yourself. There's another sermon in that that Jesus gives, right? The light under the bushel. So as we go forward, finishing Epiphany, as we go into Mission Sunday, next Sunday, as you go forth from this place with this candle, let it be a reminder that you have been redeemed. You bear the light of Christ. And you share the light of Christ in a dark, dark world. May that be so. May you be faithful witnesses May I be a faithful witness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.